New York City, welcome to Mark to Markets. I'm your host, Mark Penzener. On Mark to Markets, we discuss topics related to your money, markets, and issues near and far from personal finance. Today, the topic is China. Later on, I'll talk to Michael Mandel, the CEO of Maytex, a leading home furnishings company who has over three decades of experience doing business on the ground in China. But before that, to give you Bernstein's perspective on China, I'm joined by Jim Murphy. Jim is a senior portfolio manager at our firm and has over 20 years of industry experience working with private clients and institutional investors. Jim has been instrumental in leading our research effort on China. Jim, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Mark. Very glad to be here today. Before we get into it, Jim, can you just briefly describe our firm's presence um, from a research perspective on China? Gladly. So, it at first, and we have almost 200 professionals on the ground in China, and having that local presence is very important because their perspectives are often very different than what we see here in the West. So when you talk about having 200 people on the ground in China with a different perspective, I think it's just worthwhile to dimension the size and scale of China. Not every one of the people who, who's going to be listening to this gets up every morning thinking about China. They know it's large, but can you just put some brief numbers around that? Certainly. So, first off, China has the largest population of any country in the world with 1.4 billion people. The United States, by comparison, has about 350 million people. Uh, China is the second largest economy in the world after ours. And geographically, China is about the same size as the United States when we include Alaska. So many people think that China is a much larger country than us geographically. It's actually about the same. Interesting. So those 200 analysts who are feeding research to the portfolio management teams and your senior portfolio management team, what's the firm's conclusion or or how do we see China today? We think there's somewhat of a misperception about China. Many people think of China in terms of low-cost manufacturing or imitation products. And while those are certainly there, the growth drivers are actually quite different. The growth is really coming from the Chinese consumer environmental reform, and technology. So, so let's break that down, those three. What's going on on the consumer front? Because the story had been for years, the, the luxury items, right? The wealthy Chinese buying fancy handbags and cars and clothing. Um, is that still the story or is it different now? It's, it's really changed. The crackdown on corruption has actually uh, mitigated some of the very high-end luxury goods sales, and the focus is really on the middle class. A, a good example is a company called Maotai, which, which sells spirits. It might surprise you that Maotai, um, which sells one brand, Flying Fairy, is actually the largest spirits company in the world, selling almost exclusively to the Chinese consumer. It's even larger than Diageo, which has brands like Johnny Walker, Kettle One, and Guinness. The Chinese consumer is so big and growing so fast that consumerism in China is, again, really driving the, the economy, and, and consumer sales are actually the majority of GDP, not manufacturing in China. So, so, so one liquor company selling in China, one brand, is selling more than Diageo is with all of their brand names all across the globe. Well, they're actually, they don't sell quite as much, but the growth rate is so high that the, that the company is actually valued in the market higher than Diageo. So you also mentioned environmental, and I think off the top of my head of the photos of even back to the Olympics with the smog in Beijing, um, is that story changing? It, it really is. I mean, 
pollution has been a problem in China for decades. What's changed is that the government is finally starting to do something about it in two ways. One, there's something called supply-side reform, where the Chinese government is actually shutting down businesses that can't meet strict environmental standards. They're actually doing this. They're shutting down companies, and that benefits those companies that can meet strict environmental standards. The second part is renewables. China has the largest renewable energy market in the world. We're talking here about wind power and solar. And this market is growing over 30% per year. And there are companies, again, all over the world that sell things like wind turbines, composite materials, technology behind renewable energy that are benefiting. And then the third you mentioned was technology. Um, the, the example I'm, I'm guessing you're going to use because it's the first name that comes to mind with people is Alibaba. Can you help give some insight to the listener about the size and scope and, and how China's changing from a technological space? Well, technology in, in China um, is really expanding faster than in any other major market in the world. And that's in part because you have a large, sophisticated middle class. And that's part because there isn't the incumbency issue. You don't have retailers, for example, with thousands of bricks and mortar stores that they need to defend. The consumer isn't used to walking into a store. So therefore, the internet is the natural way to go. So you mentioned Alibaba. Alibaba is an online retailer, among other things. And last year, they sold over two and a half times as much merchandise as Amazon did. That's how big the Chinese tech market is. So you mentioned this notion of an emerging middle class. Can you just talk more about that? Well, China's focus on building a middle class through manufacturing has actually worked quite well. Because of the success in manufacturing, wages have increased, there's been a shift towards the, towards the services sector, and there is a large and growing middle class in China, which makes it very different than some of the other major emerging markets, which have never really had success in developing their own middle class. So this leads me to a question just to test the theory, right? So if you're pulling enormous numbers of people from the countryside into the city to join the middle class. Obviously, that's a really good story. But I also hear lots of worries about this notion of ghost cities, right? We've seen them on TV. Is, are those true? Is that real? Or is that just a, a moment in time? Can you take me through what people are hearing about that notion of ghost cities and whether or not they're real? So the ghost cities are real. China effectively overbuilt its, its urban centers. But what people may not fully realize is that a lot of them are actually being used. So some of the some of the ghost cities that we saw in 60 Minutes specials a number of years ago are actually bustling right now. They're full of people, and they're vibrant urban centers, and some of these cities are very large by Western standards. So is there a worry? So we're sitting here talking about this in, in mid-June of 2018, and it seems as though every day we turn on the news, there's more discussion about tariffs and potential trade war. Does, does that risk, or, or I guess I should ask, what is that risk? And then if it's a risk, Jim, does this change our perspective on the whole China story? Well, it is a risk, Mark, and quite frankly, nobody knows how this all ends. Will we have a negotiated settlement or will we enter a trade war? It's uncertain. But our base case is that there's a lot of room for negotiation. Part of that is because China's priorities have shifted. So China's priorities today are not the same as they were 
10 or 20 years ago when some of these policies were put in place. So they can give a lot of room on things like manufacturing, automobiles, raw materials, because their interest is really to protect other industries like technology and renewable energy. That's where their focus is today. So we'll see what happens. Again, nobody knows, but there is a lot of room for negotiation here. Um, So are are you and the team generally optimistic about China? I mean, what's the, what's the, opportunity or do you see it as an opportunity well there's a huge opportunity there are um, companies that are growing incredibly fast regardless of what happens on the trade front Um, we talked about technology companies and consumer companies but let's just talk about a different company conch cement which is a cement manufacturer in china that is gaining market share pricing is firm because of this cell supply side reform Conscious competitors that can't meet strict environmental standards are actually being shut down, and that's a huge benefit to Conch. And guess what? You don't export cement, right? It's too heavy. It's a very localized business. And so there are companies like Conch Cement that are very exciting. So how do investors get – so you mentioned Conch Cement. How does an investor get, in, get, get access to owning Conch Cement? There are, there are a couple of ways to, to do that. First of all, uh, in many of our international and emerging markets portfolios, we will have companies that are based in China. Most of them, quite frankly, trade offshore in places like Hong Kong and the United States. There's also another market, the China A-share market, which we've been investing in for nine years. And the A-share market is becoming increasingly accessible to non-Chinese investors and we're taking advantage of that um, in our existing portfolios and in a new China-focused fund um, that will be coming out later this year. Um, so, so just take me through. So the eight shares are overseas in Hong Kong, correct? That's right. And the eight and it, shares are, are listed in China? Yes, the A shares are listed in China, and historically, they had only been accessible by local Chinese investors, which were primarily retail investors, moms and pops. We, as an institutional investor, again, have been there for a number of years, and that market is increasingly opening up to foreign capital. In fact, the major index providers have just added China A shares to the benchmarks for the first time, and that is likely to expand. There's likely to be a bigger and bigger representation of local China A shares in global benchmarks. So so there's less institutional money in the A shares than would be typical of a, another country market, right? Correct? That's right. The the local China Asia market is highly inefficient. Our portfolio managers there have likened it to the uh, United States in the 1950s or 1960s. The information takes longer to dissipate, and that creates a great opportunity for institutional investors. So, so that's that's what I was thinking about as you were talking about that notion that if there's less professional money in the market, the market you would assume is less efficient, right? Which which would lead one to believe on standard economic theory that there's more opportunity to, to find attractive stocks at the wrong price, correct? That's right. The market is less efficient. It does create more opportunities for professional fundamental investors. And interestingly, there are some shares that trade both in the local China Asia market and the offshore market. And even though the economics are the same, the pricing is often very, very different. And that creates arbitrage opportunities where you can buy the cheaper version of shares in the same company. Um, so, so let me ask a broader question, not so much about A shares or H shares. Um, China's clearly got, if not the 
largest, one of the largest GDPs or, or growing economies in the world. If you're going to invest in China, do, do you have to assume two things, that you've got to be patient and that it's going to be volatile? Absolutely. I mean, China is still an emerging market. It's the second largest economy in the world. The economic expansion is strong, albeit slowing from unsustainably high levels. We still see great opportunities there. You just have to be patient because it is volatile. Do you think it'll be considered an emerging market five years from now? I mean, it's I, there seems like a um, a contrary notion there that it's the second largest economy in the world, but it still categorizes an emerging market. Well, they still have work to do on a number of fronts. I mean, GDP per capita in China, even though it's come up a lot, is still relatively low. So could it be a developed world uh, country someday? Absolutely. But for now, um, it's just becoming a larger and larger part of the emerging market universe. Jim, I appreciate you taking the time today. I think this was really insightful for our listeners, and I look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Before we move on, take a minute for a disclaimer. References to specific securities are presented to illustrate the application of our investment philosophy only and are not to be considered recommendations by Alliance Bernstein. The information contained herein reflects the views of Alliance Bernstein LP or its affiliates and sources it believes are reliable at the data of the date of this publication. Alliance Bernstein LP makes no representations or warranties concerning the accuracy of any data. There is no guarantee that any projection, forecast, or opinion in this material will be realized. Past performance does not guarantee future results. The views expressed herein may change at any time after the date of this publication. This document is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Alliance Bernstein LP does not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. It does not take investors' personal investment objectives or financial situation into account. Investors should discuss their individual circumstances with appropriate professionals before making any decisions. This information should not be construed as sales or marketing material or an offer of solicitation for the purchase or sale of any financial instrument, product, or service sponsored by Alliance Bernstein or its affiliates. Let's now turn our discussion to a perspective outside of Bernstein, and to do that, I'll welcome in Michael Mendel. Michael is the CEO of Maytex, a leading diversified home furnishing company selling to major retailers in the U.S. and Canada. Michael has made 135 trips to China, his first way back in 1984. Michael, thanks for joining me. Good morning, Mark. Thanks for having me. Michael, you're uniquely positioned to provide our listeners the American business person's perspective on China. And we're having this conversation at a critical time in U.S.-China relations. So I guess the obvious first question is, how do you see China today? Well, um, again, Mark, thanks for having me. You know, I've been going, my first trip was, as you mentioned, in 1984, and obviously I've seen dramatic changes uh, that are hard to describe at times. Uh, but up to now, right this very moment, China has kind of been in a, uh, in a decisive uh, moment. Uh, on the one hand, you have the geopolitical side of China looking to flex their muscles and, you know, kind of uh, looking to uh, be leaders on the world stage as never before. Um, environmentally, uh, they, they really want to clean up their act um, and stuff like that. On the other hand, there's a big fight with the basic uh, businessmen and the factory owners that we have experience with. Uh, they have to do business. And uh, when China turns around and says we're closing thousands of factories due to the environmental issues, 
uh, that hurts a lot of people. Obviously, there's a good side to that, uh, but I'm challenged as a businessman, and we all are challenged as businessmen, of where to, you know, how to manage that supply. So I think that's probably one of the biggest areas of the uh, concern right now, and that's where I see it. So we, we've talked about China a bunch in the past. Uh, the word you've used, which I think is insightful, is China's at a crossroads, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's what I'm, it's what I'm referring to. You know, the big government machine is looking to flex their muscles uh, in many, many ways. Militarily, obviously, we're not here to discuss that, but they're doing that. They're challenging the Americans. The Americans are pushing back, and it's, it's bleeding into uh, how business is done. It's, uh, there are discussions in rooms that I'm negotiating uh, deals on that are, are talking about where's America going. They're afraid. They don't understand what's going on day to day. And quite frankly, it's affecting our, our business relationships. Um, but, you know, we, we have to learn to manage it. It is uh, what's in front of us. And as entrepreneurs and businessmen, we'll, we'll deal with that. Uh, but it's certainly a, a major change. So, so this may just be an outsider's perspective, but it, it feels like the world, and especially China, is changing faster than ever before. You've been going there 35 years. Does it feel like the rate of change has picked up? Uh, the, quickly, what comes to mind is China used to be the world's photocopy machine, and you would send them product, whatever it might be, and they would copy it in uh, you know millions and millions of uh, units back to us and to the consumer. Today, China's looking to um, increase their presence in value-added services and product, whether it's robotics, whether it's um, medicine, uh, space age, all kinds of technological areas. They're putting a lot of uh, time and effort into that. So the factory owners and the, are getting less and less attention uh, from the government. Um, so that's a huge, huge change. It's not the main focus. It, it is a focus because they've got to feed millions and millions of people. But you get the sense that they're they feel it less important today than it was in the past. So this, this may be I'm a bit, answering your question. No, no, you absolutely that, are. Yeah. But, but let me yeah. ask a, a basic question, right? Because I, I think the, the average person listening to this isn't doing business every day in China like you are. And, and they think of it as, rightly so, a, you know, a communist government. Is it easy to do business there? Is it really tough? Is it a big bureaucracy? How is it just getting stuff done there? It, it's, it is a big bureaucracy, no question, but it is easy to do business. That, that really hasn't changed that much. Um, you know, from province to province, you have different labor laws that are coming into effect. Look, China's changed in the last three to five years more than has changed in the previous 30 years as far as wanting to, as far as environmental issues, as far as insurance uh, for their own employees in the factory level. Uh, wage rates and so on and so forth. So in that sense, it's a little bit trickier, but not more complicated. We just have to understand the rules. And, and let me ask the, the layman's U.S. consumer question, right? Because we see goods, whether it's kids' toys or clothing that says made in China. You've been, you've been working there, obviously, for decades. Uh, I have friends that would, would be worried about, say, children's toys from China. Is, how is their manufacturing? How's the quality? Is there anything to be worried about as a U.S. consumer? 
nothing whatsoever. First of all, as as we uh, supply products at a retailer, and the retailer demands more and more quality controls, we're putting a lot of time and effort and have been over the last, and building up upon that over the last 30 years. Uh, there is not an issue with quality. And, and it's up to us, I mean, to monitor it, of course, um, but I would say that's uh, not a big worry for us. So that that's really a, an outdated story. Uh, yeah, listen, you're going to have some issues, uh, but every country has issues. You have issues in India, issues in Pakistan, uh, Vietnam, Cambodia. You hear about lots of quality problems around, but China is really on top of that. And uh, look, their infrastructure is excellent. Uh, it's easy to get around. It's easy to get around to the factories. We have a full office and staff that's just dedicated to quality control and ethical standards, and that's what they do all day. It's very, very easy, and the, the factories are cooperating. So, so you bring up an interesting point. You mentioned India, Pakistan, other countries. Um, I guess from a labor perspective, should we still think of China as the cheapest source of labor? Um, not, you know, not really. I would say uh, they're not the cheapest today. Um, they're certainly within range, but there are less expensive countries. Uh, however, the challenge of moving to those less, like for, for me, for example, I put, you know, 30 years of infrastructural costs into China. Um, so we have that set up. To run to some of the other countries that I mentioned, you'd have to make sure your offices are all set up, you're staffed properly. Uh, certainly the labor laws are less. Uh, stringent in those other countries that I've mentioned. Uh, so there is a difference in, in some of the costs, but then transport may be a little bit more expensive. So for us, the way I've looked at it, it's pretty on par. Let me ask the um, probably the tough question today, given the political environment. There is an enormous amount of press, rightly so, day-to-day on tariffs and potential trade wars between the U.S. and China and some of our friends. Um, I guess what are your feelings on the issue, maybe more broadly, when you're having conversations with your peers? What's the tenor of those dialogues that you're having with with your friends and peers? Well, it changes every morning as you wake up and read the headlines, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, uh, The tariffs are real. Uh, and they are continuing to be worrisome. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. There is uh, certainly a feeling of uh, there will be more tariffs. Uh, and, and just to mention as a sidebar, it's not only with China. It's other countries, too, that are getting in here, getting into the fight. Um, we supply product uh, between U.S. and Canada, for example, in our plant in U.S., and there are tariff uh, discussions going on. Um, as far as my friends go and my entrepreneurial contacts, we deal with it. Uh, It's not something that, I mean, it's a little bit different. We haven't faced a trade war, but we've certainly faced headwinds before and we'll deal with it. So uh, it's going to be passed on. Uh, The numbers that they're suggesting aren't, you can't absorb it yourself. So it will be passed on and unfortunately consumers are going to end up paying it. So, So I guess that means that your clients are asking you that question all the time too. Our clients are are asking us to look at other countries, believe it or not. I'm getting emails yeah, saying, look, you could apply this to us uh, from China, 
Uh, do you have any backup plans and can you provide? Or they've also offered us opportunities on product we don't supply that come from China and saying, here, here's an opportunity for you. Can you find this for us outside of China? So we're finding that as well. So, so that leads to a question about the future. For my last topic of discussion, Michael, I need you to look into your crystal ball. How do you see China evolving and, and where do you see it, I don't know, say five years from now? Uh, I, I like China. Uh, I, I think we're going to stay the course in China. Uh, certainly we're going to look at other countries because that's the prudent thing to do. Uh, whether it's South Africa, whether it's Vietnam, Cambodia, um, take a look again at India, uh, which ha doesn't tend to be as competitive, but you know they're starting to realize that there may be an opportunity there. Um, so we're going to look elsewhere. But honestly, China um, fits our bill uh, f from e A to Z, from all of the infrastructure, uh, from um, the, the amount of money they are continuing to invest in their own economies, the middle class, obviously, they're selling to China. So the only way to sell to China is to really understand it, and you have to be boots on the ground to do that. So I, I'm, uh, I'm bullish on it, honestly. I, uh, um, I love the story going forward, personally. Let me, so the question that jumped to me, maybe this is where we'll end it, is you bet heavy on China 30 years ago. It was a different time and place. Clearly, that was the right bet to make. How did you have the guts or the forethought or what did you see that led you to put the time and effort and resources into going there in the 80s? Because it, it, it may seem obvious now, but I don't think it would have then. Well, first of all, I, I have to give credit where credit's due with my dad, who uh, was the pioneer uh, in the 80s, in the early 80s, certainly. Um, we were manufacturers uh, at that time in Canada, and we just saw we just saw the consumer uh, pushing towards lower and lower prices on our products, and we wanted to explore. And we started as a hybrid. We ran a plant in uh, in Canada at the same time, dipped our toe in uh, to China, and as we started to learn more. Um, and started to be pushed more and more on from our from the consumer side to the uh, retailer. We just kept building and building, um, and just kept going. I don't think it was, you know, uh, we weren't thinking so many years out at the time. We were entrepreneurs, and we were kind of reacting to what was in front of us, um, and that's you know how it, it built up. Certainly. When we saw the momentum going, we we uh, we wrote it out, and that's what brought us here today. Uh, but we still do manufacture in in America, um, and uh, plan on continuing to do so, but in a hybrid way. Certainly, our imports are greater, but we we are going to stay the course on manufacturing as well. Michael, thanks so much for joining and providing your perspective. I think the the people who listen to this will will take a lot out of it. So thanks again. Okay, you're welcome. Thanks. Bye-bye.